from the Equity Commission. And this is Jay of the Justice League. And this is Work the Unworkable, a podcast where two women of color navigate the workplace web and untangle it one strand at a time. Hey, Elle, did you catch the latest speech yesterday? Girl, what speech? You know, the one so many organizational execs are making about their commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. The millions they're pledging. Uh, Yeah. Let me know when any of those pledges actually trickle down to our level. Yeah, you're right. I mean, in the last year and even now, we've seen a lot of companies amplify their statements about commitments to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And sometimes you'll hear about B, too, for belonging, which we'll get into. But these are often made at the highest levels of leadership without a lot of clarity around how they'll be systematically implemented throughout organizations. Now, Before Elle and I get into it, as a caveat, neither of us are DEI experts, which is also a whole other discussion, and we've got some thoughts on what that really means, but we can speak from our own experiences and what we've seen. So Jay, talk to me about DEI from a lay perspective because honestly I hear these terms thrown out pretty frequently and I don't think I have necessarily the strongest understanding so when you think about it especially at a company how do you think about it and what is the language that we use what what does it actually mean yeah I mean there are multiple letters that are being thrown around although thankfully I I think it coalesces around just four So the language that you'll probably, you and I have probably heard the most is either DEI or Mm -hmm. DIB. So let's break those down and shout out to Seth Bowden, who has an article on this called Start Here, a primer on diversity and inclusion through the Harvard Business Review, which I tapped a little bit just to kind of get myself up to speed again. Diversity, very simply, is what makes people different from one another. You live on the East Coast. I live on the West Coast. We went to different schools, right? Basics. And then you have equity, which is about how do I think through the elimination of any historical or systematic and systemic barriers to opportunity? And this is different from equality because equality would be, let's say, you're taller than me. And equality would be, hey, L and J reach for that coffee cup on the fourth highest shelf. Okay, well, I am like a foot shorter, maybe not a foot, feels like that. So (laughs) equity would be giving me a step stool so that I could reach the shelf. Mm -hmm. And so we can both actually get to the coffee or hot cocoa, what have you on that shelf. Inclusion is around how do I actually encourage you to participate? So it might be that you are a coffee lover and I'm hosting like a caffeine lovers event. And I'd be like, oh, well, why don't you have some coffee while we drink tea? 
But then there's this other piece of belonging, which is really the way that Seth talks about it is how are you treated like a full member of the community where you can thrive? And I think this is a piece that a lot of organizations have realized in the past several years that's missing because most of them actually lead with diversity. So they're like, let me look at our website and look at the different levels of melanin on the website. And that tells me whether or not I've made progress. And you see that, right? Based on the right, way right, right. they even structure the letters where it's usually DEI or DIB. What I found interesting is that for some companies like Lyft, for example, they actually have titled their department at least a couple of years ago, uh, I and D. So focusing on inclusion first, how do I make people feel welcomed, like they belong? I'm mixing some of these terms, but you get the idea before going and trying to quote unquote, hit some numbers and targets. So that's, that's just like the DEI dibs stuff that we hear. But I also feel like, and you and I have chatted a little bit about this. There's been a new set of language that's also emerged in the past year around anti-racism. What are your thoughts here on how that manifests? So. In terms of the anti-racism dimension, I'd say myself and probably lots of others have been exposed to Ibram X. Hindi. He really sort of helped elevate the conversation around this notion of anti-racism. And my my very, very high level general understanding is we cannot passively walk through this world and say, I am not racist, right? It isn't enough to be a good person in your heart. It isn't enough to, you know, decry what's happening in the world, but not be active in changing the world, not be active in dismantling racist structures in the world. And so anti-racism is this move from passivity to actively challenging not only yourself, but others regarding their understanding of race and the impact of race on people's everyday existence. It's having those really difficult conversations with your family members. It's checking um, the use of stereotypes and pejorative language. It's actively engaging organizations that do anti-racism work. It's participating. Um, I would just say that Overall, it's definitely, my understanding is that it's that shift from being a nice person, (laughs) like many of us think of ourselves, to really actively challenging the racist structures uh, that have existed in this world, the racist language that we use, and just growing um, into better, more (laughs) humane people by, by doing the work. Overall, it is doing the work. Yeah, and I think that's such a good point because I feel like so often in the DEI space, there there's like a little bit of element of saviorism that can come through at some of these places okay. where, oh, like, is it re- are, are you really trying to create better conditions or are you just trying to pat yourself on the back? And anti-racism, based on what you've shared, is really about going beyond that. And it's not enough to, let's say you're in a situation where you hear someone say or do something really problematic. Previous thinking would have been like, well, I didn't say it. Like I, I wasn't the one who made that pejorative comment. 
anti-racism would be like, no, no, I'm, I may not have said it, but I'm going to go have a conversation with the person who did and actually talk through why this wasn't okay. And of course we know there's like different levels of engagement and all of that. Right, right. But like you said, it's literally moving from recognizing that there is a problem and actually doing something about it. And um, there are levels to this, especially in the professional workspace and how that can play out given, you know, it's professional workspace. We have to continue to work with our colleagues. People are at different levels in their understanding of race and racism. And so there's there's nuance that, that has to exist in order to I don't know, do to effectively engage in anti-racism work in um, a substantive way that shifts people like me, their everyday experience, you know? Um, I think anti-racism, as you can guess, is super important. And um, the hope is that in this whole sort of discussion around DEI, it also really becomes rooted in that anti-racism because if you've seen sort of the shift from the start of the pandemic till now, so many organizations and corporations in response to um, the murder of George Floyd and other incidents that have happened within the last two years or so, and even longer, but they put out these statements, they've done different things, um, and it isn't enough to just say, we stand with you. How do you stand with, with me? What are you doing to ensure that this doesn't happen again? And so I know we'll talk and delve into that a little bit more uh, later in the conversation, but I think it is as as a conceptually anti-racism ultimately has to root a lot of the, the work that we will be discussing. Yeah, and that's a great point when it comes to thinking about where this work happens. I think there's still not many organizations that have necessarily adopted a true anti-racist approach. And part of that is because so much of being anti-racist is, and this is just my take on it. So again, sure, others may disagree, but a lot of times it means questioning your own privilege, thinking about what do you have. And it's very daunting to actually think about that, especially when you put that into a corporate context, corporate, whether that is traditional corporate America, but even in other sectors, right? Like even in nonprofit or public sector, every part of society in the US is touched by racism, by virtue of structures and systems. And so when we start to talk about like, all right, well, how does that work for organizations? Where does this work actually sit? I think of it in multiple places, which we'll get into kind of the different levels, but, you know, some places it happens in people operations teams, aka HR, which usually you can probably get some indication of what that means about what DEI really is about. Is it actually about the people or is it like, uh, you know, corporate social responsibility? (laughs) Sometimes it is an organization that might roll up to the chief executive officer, which is often telling in a good way about how that sits as a priority. Or sometimes it's localized committees or like volunteers who are working on this after 5 p.m. 
And that speaks even more to how much a company really cares about DEI work and not even not even touching on anti-racist work. But I'm curious for you, Elle, like when you think about the types of work that happen in this space and the level, like where what comes to mind for you first? Well, so immediately, um, I think of these sort of corporate statements, <laughs> um, typically in Ooh, the wake. My favorite. Right. Um, and they come typically in the wake of some horrendous, well, like highly publicized event involving a person of color or a black person. And, you know, it's... um. It's one of those situations where damn if you do, damn if you don't. I think when it comes to corporate statements, there is a public, especially for those who are really just invested in seeing some sort of response to what's happening in the world. Right. People want to see a reaction, but at the same time, we're often dismayed by the quality of that reaction, right? Um the, the amount of, not even just the amount of thought, but the content of that reaction. What is that reaction seeking to address? You know, when does it arise? And so when it comes to corporate statements, you know, concerning timing, for example, for some corporations, it's like, we want to get something out really quick, right? Because we want to, um, the public to perceive us as having our, our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the world, being responsive, um, you know, demonstrating that we care, obviously, for our, our profit margin. But if we're being patronized, we they these corporations want to show their patrons that they have skin in the game. Sometimes these statements are driven by internal staff, right? A lot of, and just in our conversations, you shared some of what you've seen and observed in the tech space. Um, I've seen and observed different things in the public sector. And a lot of times there are staff internally who are pushing for these conversations. So maybe there was a bit of a delay from the corporate, from a corporational organization and the staff members are like, you know, where is, where is our statement? Where's our demonstration that we care about what's happening um, in the world? And that's sort of like the timing piece of, of what I've seen and what I understand around, you know, corporate statements. Then there's the content, which I kind of alluded to, which because corporations and organizations are trying to be responsive can be very cookie cutter. It's almost in some instances, copy and paste. You know, you see how oh, yeah. your competitor. Google it. Right? <laughs> oh, that was a, that was a great sentence. Exactly. Like next level corporate plagiarism. <laughs> right. You see what your competitor is doing, um, and you model your response on that. And honestly, I haven't observed or seen any really heartfelt statements, but I'm sure that they exist. Where leadership, especially probably from uh, Black-owned or minority-owned businesses have really articulated sort of the importance of responding, the importance of 
of, of what's of challenging what's happening in society and really put forth a lot of thought into how they respond. Um, and so, again, I haven't seen these personally, but I'm sure there's some out there that really put in a lot, a lot of thought into these corporate statements or what have you. I'd also say just in relation to corporate responses uh, around diversity, equity, and inclusion, there is a higher focus now on corporate values and establishing corporate values that drive how the organization operates. This can be via blog posts, if you recall, you and I, you actually introduced me to what happened at Coinbase. If you could just share or give a high um, level summary of uh, what transpired there with respect to their own corporate values and statement related to what was happening during the pandemic. Yeah, what I actually think is super interesting about Coinbase as a case study is that to your point earlier, it was actually their staff that drove the CEO to issue the initial statement right after the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, saying they condemned the death. I don't remember the details of it because it, like so many others, came out around the same time. So it was almost more of a checklist exercise, to be honest. And then earlier this year, I believe the CEO issued another blog post basically saying, hey, you know what? You come to the office, you're here to do work. Politics have no place here. We, I as a CEO, don't care about your politics. We're not going to have conversations about that in any of our you know, Slack channels or any of these team communication mediums. And that was really huge. A significant number of their staff actually resigned and they offered, they said, hey, if you don't agree with it, let us know. We will pay you to leave, which from a leadership perspective, they're like, this detracts from our work and we don't want those people working here. And that tells you a lot about what they actually care about. Oh, and right. Basecamp, uh, which is another startup in the project management space. Coinbase does a lot of stuff in crypto. Um, Basecamp actually issued a similar statement, which was really shocking to a lot of the staff there because Basecamp for years has been known for an incredibly inclusive, supportive culture. And in just two, three posts, all of that was gone. And I think Basecamp, about two thirds of their staff actually left as a result of that statement. Um, and I think it is, it's just really telling for how a lot of folks now see the responsibility of their leadership to actually step up when this stuff happens. And when it doesn't align with their values, they walk out. Sometimes you'll see companies respond to internal happenings. So a really great example here was there was a Google employee um, by James Damore or something, I forget his name. And he basically wrote a memo that was anti-diversity, just uh, rained on so many different verbal attacks on pretty much every single group that you can think of. It was equal opportunity in that sense. So like really living up to his ethos. And Google, I believe either put him on leave or fired him. There's a whole range of examples here to really point out 
bad examples of what these statements can look like, in my view, right? That's based on my own value system. If you're the Coinbase CEO, you're like, that's great. Got everybody out I didn't want. And this is kind of a sidebar, but I have to ask, and it's almost a rhetorical question, but was there a leadership change with respect to base camps, sort of about face? No, there wasn't. So these two folks, and I haven't followed all of their writings uh, outside of their company context, but I am quite certain because I followed this very closely on Twitter, as one does right after it exploded, and they have issued out books on culture and how to set the right culture for your company. And I think what it pointed to was more of fatigue and exhaustion from, let's call it what it is, which is white folks who were tired of being asked to empathize and care about the things that impact their staff, which is wow, wow, right? Too much, too much. You can't expect me to to empathize on your behalf. Like what? That's not what you come into the company for. That's not what I'm here getting paid for. But that, that was really at the crux of it. They couldn't handle it. And even getting that first uh, blog or first statement out from the Coinbase CEO took a lot of effort and, organizing by internal staff. So no leadership change, just just fatigue. Just a collective you know. white exhaustion. Correct. <laughs> Correct. And you know, it's that's so funny because, you know, tying in the pandemic and the flurry of statements and actions that came out in response to events that happened at that time, And looking at where we are now, you are seeing more conversations about where are you now? What about those corporate values? What about that statement you made a year, a year and a half ago? Because we observed this almost collapse, for lack of a better word, but this sort, this very large scale fatigue with the subject. And for the anti-racist, their response is likely going to be, huh, you're tired about advocating? We're tired of experiencing it. Experiencing it, it. right. (laughs) So make it make sense. That being said, I think um, this is actually a great segue into other types of work that one might um, observe in this DEI space. What are your thoughts on the types of work that you've observed around DEI um, in the professional space? Yeah, so I think there's numerous initiatives and programs that oftentimes will accompany a corporate statement or come as a fast follow. So similarly, they are either driven by a company faux pas, internal events like the one that I mentioned at Google, or public news events like George Floyd, or if we think about um, kind of the increased media coverage around anti-Asian attacks that really took, saw a huge uptick, especially after COVID-19. But what you see in these programs, and again, speaking from my own limited experience at a few different companies, is that it can look like a whole range of things. Sometimes it's around 
can we do some more research on this? Do we have programs that we put in place, which are, you know, community engagement programs? So those kind of fall into what I would think of as corporate social responsibility, right? This might be donating money to particular nonprofits or partnering with nonprofits. A lot of tech companies will actually bring in students who are working with a nonprofit to give them exposure to coding or kind of get them prepped for secondary school or college. Um, I think it's also interesting to think about when we talk about initiatives and programs, there's different ways that companies have approached it. So for Peloton, they actually had very specific actions that they were going to take. Some of these included, for instance, helping their hourly staff, which at a lot of tech companies, most of these hourly staff tend to be heavily people of color, especially black and brown folks, actually transition into full-time roles at Peloton, right? Which is a little bit different from what other folks might think of as, you know, pour millions into a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Uber, as a different example, had kind of like 14 different commitments that they made. And underneath each of these commitments, there were then additional specific actions or um, kind of task forces that were required. And then I think you had mentioned one that was super interesting, which I wanted you to chat through around Dapper Dan and Gucci, because that's like so very different from these really big tech company type DEI initiatives that are around Mm -hmm. like throwing money and people at the problem and spitting up departments. It's like, can you talk through some of the context on that one? Yeah. And it's crazy because we're lumping this under DEI. It's not a a formal initiative, right? But it is in response to a wrong against a Black man, um, a decades-long wrong. And what you saw was the implementation of a program or project to help right that wrong. So for our listeners, Dapper Dan is a Harlem-based, and not just Harlem-based, born and raised Harlemite who created culture around clothing um, in in rap, R&B in the, the, the late 80s, early 90s, probably throughout the 80s. Either way, Dapper Dan had a very unique style as a designer. He would find these logoed prints from various uh, luxury brands and sort of tailor them it's a unique ways that became a style that was worn by many celebrities and well-known people throughout the entire hip-hop community and not just Harlem. In any event, as you can imagine, because he was using textiles from these luxury brands, and once they got wind, likely that he was making a lot of money out of sort of refashioning their textiles, they shut his whole operation down. And so for an extended period of time, we're talking decades, Dapper Dan, uh, his business diminished as a result of the luxury uh, industry's sort of attack against his production. And so decades later, lo and behold, what shows up on Gucci's run- runway? This was around 2017, 
but literally almost a carbon copy of one of Dapper Dan's style. Now, with the advent of social media, since, you know, his uh, rise and fall, it wasn't like then where you only had sort of a vocal community, maybe within Harlem. We're talking about Black Twitter was up in arms and was like, no, 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 we're not doing this. You are not going to take credit for this man's design and reproduce his design when you literally destroyed his career. And so in response to a very vocal uh, community, Gucci ended up giving him, if not his own line, um, I believe they opened a Gucci store in Harlem to sort of repair, give him reparations, really not just for this incident of one incident. I don't believe it was just because of this one incident. Honestly, I think it was in response to not only taking his style, but also destroying his career in the process and not creating a space for his work, you know, 20 years ago. And so that's the context of the Dapper Dan and Gucci situation. And as I mentioned um, earlier, it's not necessarily DEI on a grand scale, but when you see these corporations and they're being called out for stealing Black creators' work, the newest or the latest response is to, you know, give them you know, a project or some sort of opportunity with their organization um, in response. And for me, that's sort of like a one, you know, a individualized DEI initiative. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I think this type, so uh, like this notion of one off and because they know, like it's on social media, it's still about their bottom line. They don't want to be, essentially boycotted by folks who are purchasing in this luxury space. This is one new category that we're seeing of pulling in influencers of various backgrounds and getting them to actually do some of the DEI work. Amazon also has, and a number of different companies have a lot of these Black-owned businesses that they're investing in. So again, there's kind of, when we think about programs, there's the quote unquote, community engagement, if you will, where you're putting money or trying to publicize different businesses because it all makes you look better. And then there's some stuff that is internal to the company, which I think you'll get, you know, you, I know you have a lot of thoughts on this, more of the the guts, if you will, of DEI work, but there's some of the, let's do article clubs or have safe space conversations, kind of Yes, the programming is there, but it doesn't always hit on where it really needs to, especially within a work context. And I would say that a lot of these programs, and again, broad brush, they do tend to be reactive. They're not always solving for a very specific problem. Um, And a lot of it is solving more for perception. Those are the the not as well-designed ones. Mm -hmm. The thoughtful ones are thinking more long-term but they also recognize that there's a risk because the public wants to see why isn't this solved now? And the reality is if you really want to drive change, some of this stuff takes years to actually get the proper pieces in place, which brings me to the next layer of this work. Where, where should, where do you think we should actually be starting this stuff, Elle? 
Right, right. I mean, initially, so we've talked about corporate statements, maybe corporate values that were communicated externally. Then you have the sort of DEI initiatives and programs. And as you alluded to, these are often very reactive, very ad hoc approaches to diversity, equity, inclusion. And the objective really should be to embed these uh, approaches within the overall organization, right? So not just a piece of the organization, but really within the fabric of the organization. It's moving from the programmatic to the structural. So actual implementation of DEI infrastructure and policies. And honestly, I have not seen this, and obviously I haven't worked for every organization, but I've worked for a lot. And in terms of the type of structures that I've seen uh, try to attempt to address this, they've been very limited, but I've seen some, right? So for example, around pay equity in terms of um, individuals of different backgrounds and in the same position and whether or not they make the same amount. If you remember, I was chatting with you about an organization that I was interviewing for that had made the determination that at the director level, everyone gets paid this amount, right? And so if you, and that isn't to say that they had effectively addressed who gets to interview for that director level seat, right? And this is sort of a neutral sort of statement about what they did. But I do think, I do actually believe that it is a a good step in the right direction. But yes, essentially, every director at this organization makes the same amount. So there is no speculating. There is no uh, lack of fairness in promotions and things of that nature. And so for me, that is an example of something that's structural, something that is embedded within the organization. Another structure, I think, that to some extent exists for a lot of organizations. So for example, if you look at not just applications with job postings, you might see that disclaimer at the bottom that says we are an equal opportunity employer. We encourage women and minorities to apply. You know, a lot of companies for legal reasons, for reasons of perception and optics have included those kinds of statements. And you could say that that is a kind of sort of structural um, policy around that, around DEI, whether it's great or how robust it might be, that I'm sure looks different depending on the organization that we're talking about, but it is something that um, organizations have put in place. And I think similar to that, just promotions, um, how organizations promote within the organization is another potential example of structural policies that get to the heart of diversity, equity, inclusion. The issue is, and so as you can see, I'm giving a few sort of scant examples of this infrastructure, and that could be a reflection of my own knowledge 
But I also think it's probably an indication of (laughs) the very limited efforts by corporations and organizations to embed DEI into their their day-to-day operations. But incidentally, there are few structures that we can really think of, but also sort of who is executing on leadership's values, right? Um, Senior, middle management, and we talk about this and we'll probably talk about it a little more, but these are often individuals who have not been trained, who do not have the capacity to effectively implement infrastructure, right? effectively task managers in a lot of organizations and don't really have the bandwidth. And so when you think about infrastructure, you have to take into consideration who the implementers are and how effectively um, they can do that and how well equipped they are to do that. Um, Another thing, just in terms of middle management implementation, the who behind DEI infrastructure and policies is how high of a priority is it for the organization? You've already kicked it down to middle management in terms of the implementation and and not resource them. And so it's not likely to be high on the list of priorities for those individuals. Moreover, there isn't enough signaling, if you that this is important to the staff. Um, You and I talked about the various sort of um, activities and groups at our respective organizations around DEI. And I recall sharing with you that in one of the groups that I participated in, this sort of anti-racism thinking group at my organization, folks were saying that they felt comfortable attending the meetings and actively participating in the meetings because they saw their leaders, their bosses, their supervisors on the meeting invite. They had learned that their supervisors and leaders had actually participated in these um, various spaces. And so that gave them the confidence and comfort in knowing that it was okay for them to do that. And that isn't necessarily as widespread at other organizations. In fact, there is, and we'll definitely talk about this in the safe spaces um, discussion, but that signaling of the value of this activity, I think, is really lacking in uh, implementation of DEI infrastructure, not just for um, entry level and other staff, but even for middle management. You know, sometimes it's just, as you alluded to, a checklist. It's just, I told you to do this thing and I can, I can now go out into the world and say, we have created this structure, but I haven't empowered you to do anything. Yeah, I will say, I think um, in a lot of different tech organizations as one way of starting to try to combat this, because I think leadership is realizing we can't just make these corporate statements, talk about these programs we have in place, and then give the staff who have to, frankly, to your point, pull their time off of business critical projects to work on this in some way and tell them, hey, do this without recognizing the trade-offs. And so 
one thing um, organization, some organizations are doing is actually leveraging the objectives key results framework that a lot of folks are assessed at during performance review time to actually say, hey, your objective is something related to DEI, and here's actually the key results we need to be seeing you deliver on. But in a lot of cases, people generally struggle with getting, so this framework shortened as OKR, it's already hard to write effective OKRs for business goals, and you can only imagine how much more difficult it can be with something like a goal or key result in the DEI space, where if you don't do it well, it's just a checklist and it ends up being something that usually gets pushed to the back burner, which again, signals, oh, this isn't that important. I'm like, right. we're being super critical here. So I will caveat that. Like we are being critical of how companies are approaching this And it is not to say that every company that does this doesn't do it well. I think there are probably companies that are being really intentional about it. But I think it's also so important to recognize where the pitfalls are. And I'd love to get your thoughts, Elle. Like we've talked through some of the high level gaps that we can see with this different type of work. When you think about the reality of your everyday experience or those of others around you, what what does that look like if you think about like statements and affirmations as one example? Yeah, I mean, I think throughout the conversation, we've sort of alluded to like the various structures that are that we've observed, um, but also the pitfalls of those various structures. And when when I say pitfall, I really mean sort of this external facing response or reaction? What are the implications for my my day-to-day? What does that statement and affirmation do for me on an individual level in terms of my experience in the workplace? And honestly, I can say that probably not a lot of us have seen any significant change for the better in our workplace as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion or anti-racism work. We are still dealing with the same behaviors internally, despite our company or organization's sort of external response. And so, as you mentioned, statements and affirmations, that's great that a company, or let's, it's neutral. So a company wants to demonstrate solidarity. Okay, we've talked about sort of the drawbacks of that, a flat sort of uninspired statement that's copy and paste of something that someone else has said. But truly, is this a reflection of your own values as an organization? And I can say for many of us, that is not the case. And and so the question becomes, before you, it's less of a question and more of a statement, but it's before you react to what's happening in the outside world, find out, get a pulse check, on a temperature check on what's happening within your or, own organizations across your staff, particularly with your groups who are traditionally marginalized and find out what's important to them. Find out how they are feeling, how you should respond to their needs, how they think the organization should address what's happening in the world, especially as it impacts people's ability to do do their job well and effectively. 
it's getting that better understanding first before rushing to paint this picture. And honestly, and maybe I, I'm taking for granted that people are smarter than they actually are, but I don't think people are really swayed. I mean, sure, there's probably data, but how are people really swayed by a lot of these statements? If social media is any indication, I'm going with no, because there is a lot of reaction. You put out the statement, you said you're in solidarity, and a year and change, a year later, your employees are in the still in the same place. You have not fulfilled the commitments that you said you were going to commit, right? Some of those DEI initiatives and programs that you decided to launch in response to this conversation about race and racism. None of that, a lot of that has not come to fruition. And so the reality is these, these statements and affirmations only affirm the egos and pocketbooks of the, the leadership of these, these companies and organizations. They really have not done anything to, for your, your worker, honestly. Um, Mic drop. <laughs> I mean, it's, thoughts, it's Jay. It's true, though. I do think that it's almost like there's two different audiences, right? Because the statements that are issued are typically for, I wouldn't even really say they're for investors, because investors are looking at a different type of line, and it is not the text line in your statement. Um, I think it is more for current consumers of that company's products who want to feel good that they're buying from a company that cares. I think that when there are internal statements, and I, of course, there are a number of legal considerations and marketing and comms, like, I don't want to oversimplify. I know those statements go through a whole lot of vetting, which is oftentimes why they can look the way they do by the time they get released to the public. With internal statements, I think to your point, it's so critical that one, some level of genuine humanity comes through because that actually is an indication to your staff that this is not a checkbox thing for you, but this is actually something that really touches you in a different way. And I've seen this done from leadership at organizations where I was, where, um, for instance, when the attacks against Asian American and Pacific Islander folk went up several, several fold last year, the chief diversity officer actually sent out an incredibly long and very emotional statement about what it was like for her to grow up. And I think that one unlocked a lot of emotions for myself, but also other staff to actually understand what does that mean. And that is so interesting that you said that. You said two things um, that drew my attention. One being the various layers within an organization. So the the review of a statement to produce sort of this sort of sterile statement. It, and you also mentioned a very specific example where someone was authentic and transparent and uh, emotive in that statement. And it raises the question, who is writing the statement? And so, yes, legal comms, but like, who are the people 
that are dictating what goes into the statement. And I think that is a huge part of it because the decision to put out a statement, um, I don't know what sort of legal liability would arise (laughs) as a result of putting out these statements, but often it is a comms shop that is trying to craft this perfectly balanced statement where we don't offend, but we say we care, but we don't care too much to alienate, potentially alienate someone else. And just the juxtaposition of what you're saying, like on the one hand, you have these sterile statements, but on the other hand, you have this clear example where someone in the leadership sort of reacts to what's happening in the world in a very public way and is able to reach and a lot of folks, probably not just you, but others, and that person's statement really resonate with them. I think it is a question of why, not why, because we know why, business is the bottom line, but that decision point to not be thoughtful for the sake of a dollar really undermines an organization's ability to engage this work in a real and life-changing way a way that shifts what's happening inside of the building and possibly without the building, right? Because companies influence other companies. And if we moved more in the direction towards what that chief diversity officer did, think about the kind of changes that we could potentially uh, unlock (laughs) as a result of allowing people more space to be themselves. Right. I mean, there's a whole other conversation that you're alluding to here around authenticity and figuring out what does it mean to bring your whole self? And of course, there's many debates about how authentic one can be in a corporate environment. Um, I think something else I've seen is some organizations will actually consult with particular employee resource groups to ask for their input as to how they want the company to articulate their position on this. And of course, there are, you know, pros and cons to taking that approach. It's also very much dependent on the type of relationship that leadership has with that ERG. Like, is it an extractive relationship where the ERG feels like, hey, I'm just put on every time to make a statement on the behalf of a group of people, which seems to suggest that it's very monolithic when it's not? Or is it a much more uh, symbiotic relationship between the ERG and leadership where the ERG actually feels invested in and they believe, hey, this is really an opportunity to drive our leadership forward Mm -hmm. in thinking through and being intentional around the words that we select for a corporate statement. And again, I think I've seen some of that, which gives me hope. I think the Peloton statement that they released was really thoughtful. It had concrete actions that backed it up and they've continued investing in that space. Like I recently saw a post on LinkedIn from one of their staff who has actually transitioned away from their role on more of the tech side, right? In terms of engineering and all of that to actually dedicating their time to thinking about how do we truly create pathways for their hourly staff. And so again, I want to 
just drop in a few nuggets of hope here for this stuff can be done, but it takes care and intentionality that companies often blow past because they're so anxious to just put a statement out there without thinking about how could we do this well and in a way that's truly impactful. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and sort of in a roundabout way, linking what you were saying around authenticity and being able to create statements that, um, you know, speak to what you're experiencing. Another thing that both of you, uh, both of you, both of us have experienced in the workplace are safe spaces, this notion of space, safe spaces, thoughts, reactions. I mean, I have many, but (laughs) what do you think Uh, about safe spaces? I feel like my thinking on this has evolved over the years as it should, right? Hashtag growth mindset. I think there are safe spaces when they're done well can be truly effective because it actually creates a place where an organization staff can talk openly and freely about what they're feeling in a way that genuinely makes them feel like, wow, my organization cares about me. They understand that we are not robots. You cannot, even though people talk about compartmentalizing their emotions and work, that is not real. (laughs) The barriers between work and everything else happening in your life are very permeable and porous, and they will come through regardless of how you feel like you can control them right like if i'm at my desk and i'm having a moment it's going to happen at my desk it's it's not (laughs) gonna be like oh you're at your desk sorry we'll pull that back and we'll we'll revisit that in a few minutes right 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 no (laughs) and so i think with safe spaces there's a few things one is it a proactive thing that organizations are doing because they actually want to be thoughtful or is it something that's super reactive where like oh my gosh george floyd was murdered there's lots of protests we need to just do something in addition to having a statement so let's just put together a, a safe space and say that people can come and talk about it, which is not a safe space, right? A safe space implies you're thinking through who is in that space, who's speaking, who is moderating. How do we manage any scenarios where there are potentially hurtful, divisive, triggering comments that are made and actually enable meaningful conversation. The other thing that I think with safe spaces is it always comes back to, for me, the question of who is the space safe for? Because oftentimes if you've got a pretty mixed audience, I feel relatively confident in saying that marginalized folks who have been historically marginalized will not be the safe ones in that space because their emotions, their thoughts, their feelings are not prioritized. Absolutely not. Like, really? Right. And I 
what I wish that more organizations would do was instead of leaning on safe spaces in the aftermath of a really traumatic event, whether that is the murder of George Floyd or, frankly, numerous other traumatic events. Listen, (laughs) we are... So let's let's pause for a second because we keep mentioning the murder of George Floyd, right? There are many, many, many other names that Ahmaud we need to Arbery, be. like Breonna Taylor, like just yeah. So George, we're saying George Floyd, and when we say George Floyd, it is unfortunately like a shortcut in, if you will, to actually saying the names of. So, so, so many mm. Black people who have been killed in this country. And so we thank you for that, L. We want to be clear. This is not the only person. Absolutely not. And and thank you for just igno- like just wanting to acknowledge that there's there have been so many people before George Floyd. And I know George Floyd is often seen sort of as a spark um, that sort of coalesced with the pandemic and just the economic situation of this country to create a different sort of environment but there have been people before and after him (laughs) and so just so many so many so so many to my eyes like yeah and i think the issue that i have with safe spaces is they are too often a reaction instead of management thinking about how can we be in an environment where that safety is just a given on an everyday basis, um, where people can come in and be like, you know what, I need to tap out. I So we can talk about, for instance, Rittenhouse and the aftermath of that trial and the verdict, right? A truly safe space in an organization would have been one where someone who was feeling once again, incredibly let down by this country's justice system didn't have to articulate all that. They could if they wanted to, but that it could also just be like, you know what? I need a day. I actually saw a really fantastic post from Arlen Hamilton, who I've mentioned multiple times because I just, I really love her. I think she's awesome. Uh, She has a new company that she's running. I believe it's called Higher Runner. And she actually posted on her Instagram telling her folks, one, we had the day, they had the day off anyway, like a company-wide day. But she said, folks, take the day. We need this. And in the caption of her post on Instagram, I believe she said, silence is violence. And things like that are how you actually put into practice, in my opinion, truly safe spaces where all of this aftermath is not required because people know they can actually show up and be honest. And that's what's really critical, especially for folks who are more junior. They're not gonna. They're mm-hmm. not gonna come tell you this. They're not going to come tell you this, and so tangentially related to that, um, safe spaces is when employers and and organizations and and senior leadership have the nerve to tell you to speak up, knowing that the safe the space isn't safe. Tell mm. you to speak up, right? 
And usually there are costs. Tremendous costs. And the again, like the ways that these safe spaces are designed, who's listening and who's gonna take the comments that are said in that room outside and use it in a way that hurts you down the road. Not to make everyone paranoid, but and Elle, I know you got thoughts. Right. I have thoughts. This is real life. And this notion of safe spaces and self-advocacy until organizations have really embedded diversity, equity, inclusion, anti-racism, safe spaces into their entire organization, there is a high risk that you are definitely not safe. And that to speak up and self-advocate would be to your detriment. I can recall from personal experience, I've also heard from others, instances where the company line is that this is an open space, we're receptive to feedback, we're, we're here with a listening ear, And you seize that opportunity, right? You take that opportunity to say, okay, this is the time where I'm going to be the change, where I'm going to self-advocate, where I'm going to communicate what my needs are and what is wrong. And what you say is used against you. You are literally punished for it. And this has happened to me. And as Jay indicated, this isn't to generate fear, but there are real live consequences. This is why so many organizations try to have policies concerning retaliation. We know HR is some, well, not we know. These are my personal opinions. HR is janky. Okay. I don't know what's happening in the tech space, but over here in public public sector world, HR is not your friend. And so every invitation any invitation that an individual might be given, especially if you are not in senior leadership, to self-advocate, you might want to think about whether or not you want to accept it. Because uh, as Jay indicated, safe spaces, not only are they created in a really reactive way, but they're not always safe. And we're not just talking about the individual safe spaces that are created ad hoc in response to what's happening in the world, but just self-advocacy generally in the professional workplace um, is, is risky. And what's crazy is that organizations, it's kind of, it's a kind of gaslighting in a way, right? You know, saying that we welcome your feedback, but simultaneously punishing you for it saying that this is an open and welcoming space and everybody feels good about working here, but then conducting a survey of your staff and the majority of the staff is like, this is crazy. This is an unsafe space, right? Like that that cognitive dissonance really uh, exists, especially in the public sector, Um, but it makes you question as I mentioned, these invitations to self-advocate, to be transparent about not only what you're experiencing internally as it relates to like work, but also what's happening outside of the workplace. Um, And so 
this lends itself to something we discussed earlier, just around signaling. And it's kind of important if we're kicking down the responsibility of implementing DEI initiatives or implementing an organization's overall sort of policies and procedures around um, DEI anti-racism work, we have to kick it down to people who are well-resourced, who care, and who are invested such that they signal to the people that report to them that it is okay. Right. People need to know that it is okay. And like I mentioned earlier, in my anti-racism group, people felt comfortable participating in that group because their supervisors attended that group and actively participated and brought their findings back to, to, to group meetings and talked about the importance of the work and gave them time to carve out in their schedule for that long two-hour meeting. It needs to be messaged by middle management that it is okay. Not only just message, but demonstrated that it is okay. And that safe spaces exist and speaking up is okay. Yeah, I think all of those are such great reminders for any executives or even middle management folks around. If you are really talking about how much you care about DEI, there are so many ways that you need to be showing up and showing that to your staff and holding sometimes your leadership accountable as well for what they're doing to implement. Because one thing that I hadn't touched on earlier, but a lot of these DEI programs are oftentimes run either as volunteer initiatives or in silos. By that, I mean that they might be run by a specific DEI dedicated department, which can feel very removed from the rest of the business. Again, mm-hmm. I'm speaking within the context of corporate America and particularly the tech industry, which means you've got one part of the business talking about all these great initiatives, about the ERG work that's happening, all of that. And then you have a completely just disparate experience where you feel like, wait, am I in the same organization? Because I do not feel like I am getting the benefits of everything that we're saying we're doing over there right? in my everyday job. Mm-hmm. And I think all of this stuff, the other thought that it came to me when you were talking about knowing the risks and that mental thrash you are in of experiencing the dissonance between someone telling you, Elle, I I really want to hear your thoughts. Tell me, give me feedback. How are we doing on this as an organization? And then you give them your thought that of course might run slightly counter to their perception of where they are and bam. Problems. Exactly. (laughs) And I think that is a reflection of we are only okay with hearing what we believe is true. And that can be the, I think, risky thing about so much DEI work is that it's often seen as really pretty and nice and packaged up well. And, you know, just like rainbows and sparkles, 
we're going to do this stuff well, and then we'll have solved the problem. Right. And what I've realized, even for myself over the years, trying to learn more about this is that there's so much self-reflection and like, honestly, a lot of ugly unlearning that has to happen because of how we've been socialized and then figuring out how do you actually imbue that into all these different parts of an organization, not just research programs or recruiting, because those are all pieces, but it has to actually shape everything else, which bringing it back to your initial thoughts here around the systemic underlying foundations of DEI, that's why it's important. And again, there's companies that are now doing pay audits, salary audits on a biannual or annual basis, but these initiatives can't be living separate lives within one organization. Right, right. You're absolutely right. And and just to piggyback off what you're saying, and to really revisit what was said at the top of the conversation about anti-racism, it is really moving from the passive to the active. It is not enough to have these programs. And you mentioned how tech sort of has, and, and other industries likely have, if they do have uh, some sort of diversity arm, sort of separate and siloed, even in the public sector space where it's embedded, it is very, I, I don't even know how to describe it, but it's still, even when it applies to an entire division, there's still something missing. And that the, the, the thing that's missing is that sort of active anti-racism lens. It is the active revisiting of these concepts that we're having these working groups about and discussing in our safe spaces. It is that active creation of policies that get to the heart of the matter in terms of negative interactions in your professional workspace on a day-to-day. It is that pro proactive and active element of anti-racism work that for me is largely missing. That being said, I think we've touched on a lot of things. Thank you so much for helping us to understand diversity, equity, and inclusion in the many layers that you've observed, that I've observed. And so just in terms of how we can move the conversation forward and for others to really think about DEI, what's some some sort of workable wisdom around diversity, equity, inclusion, how it could be better understood, one, uh, better integrated and better integrated into organizations. Yeah, I mean, I think the first one is that DEIB comes packaged in so many different ways and can be implemented at multiple different levels. And to start digging into this work, I think there is a good level of just reading and learning as a first step. Action is critical, but I think we've talked about the risks of taking uninformed action. And anti-racism is not about just acting without thoughtful intention and context. So I think those two things really need to go hand in hand. 
And the second piece is that there's an assumption that when you just set out these statements and corporate values at the top, it'll just stream down and work properly. But, you know, we know how well trickle-down economics worked. It did not. DEI also doesn't work that way. It takes constant care and nourishment at every single level of an organization and really weaving it into everyday actions as well so that you don't have one arm of an organization talking a big game about all these millions they're investing. And on the other side of your organization, you have staff who are still chafing under management that's not really bringing to bear all of the different principles. I think the last two pieces here that we've talked about, Elle, are intentionality is just so, so critical to actually shaping the impact of this DEI work. That means if I say that I want your feedback, I got to actually be open to that feedback, even if I don't agree with it. And when it comes to making all of this happen, you got to resource it properly. You can't say, hey, Elle, why don't you lead this working group after 5 p.m.? And right. just keep going at it. No. <laughs> that is a surefire way to remind your staff that you do not actually value this work by virtue Absolutely. of treating it as an extracurricular. No. Pay me a, a, a stipend and carve out some of my other work so that I can give this the attention that it deserves. Um resourcing is critical. So even if it isn't your exclusive job, if you <laughs> volunteer to be the, the DEI person on your team, the resources should absolutely follow you. Um, great points, Jay. I appreciate that. We appreciate that. And um, that wraps up this episode of A Work the Unworkable. We will talk to you guys next time. Peace.